Welcome to episode 146 of This Week in Linux, your weekly source for Linux GNUs. From the Destination Linux Network, I'm Michael Tunnell. If you're new to the show, this is the podcast that will keep you up to date with what's going on in the Linux world, and I'll give you my take as a 20-year-plus Linux user. Coming up on this week's episode, we've got an update for the Linux support on Apple's M1 Mac hardware. KDE announced a new patch set for Qt 5 support. Uh, IBM announced a compiler for Linux for the COBOL language for some reason. Then later in the show, we're bringing back everyone's favorite legal news segment with Google versus Oracle reaching the U.S. Supreme Court and what happened there. We've also got releases to talk about such as Pipewire 0.3.25, JingOS 0.8, and GNOME designers are exploring the possibility of having a bottom panel in the GNOME shell. Then we'll round out the show with some humble bundles for Python programming and so much more. All that and much more coming up right now on your weekly source for Linux GNU's. First in the show this week, we're going to talk about a follow-up to the Linux on M1 Mac support that we talked about in a previous episode. And this is thanks to the Asahi Linux project. If you're not familiar, Asahi Linux is basically a project to develop support for these types of Macs. So like the M1 Mac architecture and that sort of stuff. They're starting with the Mac Mini, so they're going to have support right now just for the Mac Mini, but they're going to be rolling out much more in the future. Uh, this is, for some people might think that this is a Linux distro because of the way it's named, Asahi Linux. It's not actually a distro, although it will be at some point. So they say they're eventually going to make a remix of Arch Linux ARM as a distro and package it for people to try out the support for M1 Max. It won't necessarily be like a distro to be kind of, it's more like a testing thing, but not exactly like a, it's like a, a testing plus testing out the new features that they create. So like a, a, a developer preview and that sort of stuff. Uh, but that's not yet happened, but in the future, they do plan to do that. So what happened this week? Well, we got some news from the Asahi Linux project that they have initial support for the M1 Max coming in Linux 5.13. That's right. So Hector Martin says that finally it's been a long time coming, but it's done. This is just basic bring up, but it lays a solid foundation and is probably the most challenging upstreaming step we'll have to do, at least until the GPU stuff is done. This has been tested on Apple's M1 Mac Mini, booting to a frame buffer and serial console with an ARM 64 def config. So this is very, very cool. So as like I said, it's talking about just the M1 Mac Mini so far, but in the future, they're gonna do some more testing. But it coming in the Linux 5.13 is very cool because that means it's been not that long for the development and it's already got a good solid foundation, which is fantastic to hear. And in the mailing list post, they provide some details about how much work it's taking to make this. They say that making the port work is considerable difficulties, among them the need for a new bootloader, working with custom USB commands that Apple includes on its device. They say that currently the easiest way to get a serial console on this machine or on these machines is to use a second M1 box and a simple USB-C cable. But in the coming weeks, they have plans to design an open hardware project to provide serial and debug uh, connectivity to these machines from uh, potentially even over other vendors, such as having support for UART over type C setups. So this is quite interesting. And based on the currently expected schedule for the Linux kernel, the initial support should be available in about three months. That's not to say it will be ready for users in three months. 
This is more about foundational support of the hardware in the kernel that eventually will become more and more support for you know end users and that sort of stuff. So I just wanted to talk about it because it's something that is very important. And there have been people who have questioned whether we should even care about supporting this hardware. And in my opinion, it is very important because the amount of hype and support this hardware has suggests that Apple will continue down this path for many years to come. And if we just ignored it, it would essentially eliminate a ton of potential for the Linux platform and the Linux ecosystem because of this hardware becoming more and more important to Apple. And therefore, people have been you know, testing it out and trying it out. And the more people who use this hardware, the more likely we will need to have support for it if they ever decide to do any transitions or even dual booting and that sort of stuff. So it is very important. And I'm happy that uh, the Asahi Linux project is uh, making this happen. So uh, to Hector Martin and everyone else working on Asahi Linux, thank you very much for your efforts. And uh, if you'd like to learn more about Asahi Linux, then I'll have links in the show notes below. Up next in the show, we have some interesting news from the GNOME team because some GNOME designers have introduced a mock-up to the GNOME GitLab that I think is quite cool and a, probably a good thing for them to consider. And that is this mock-up shows a potential change for the GNOME Shell's top panel may become a bottom panel. So now before we get into any of the details or any further, this is just a mock-up, so it doesn't mean that it will happen. It's just that there is potential that it might happen. And honestly, I do think that they should because the new GNOME 40 does have some issues, especially with mouse, mouse travel. We'll get to that in a second. So you may be wondering, why is this newsworthy for inclusion in the show? Well, I've been using Linux for over 20 years, and I can't remember a time where GNOME didn't have a top panel. The entirety of GNOME 3 and GNOME 40 have top panel system access and system clock. Uh, they, it's also GNOME 2 technically had a top panel because it had a dual panel method where some stuff were in the top panel, some were in the bottom panel, that sort of stuff. So this seemingly small change would be a big change based on the legacy of what GNOME shell has always worked like. So this, this, is, kind of, uh, this is kind of interesting in that case. So Tobias Bernard, one of the designers behind GNOME 40, has introduced some mock-ups for a bottom panel in GNOME Shell. In the video version of the show, you can see some images displaying these mock-ups. If you are using the, are an audio-only listener, then you can check out the links in the show notes for the links to the thread, as well as some the uh, the individual mock-up images. And in the visuals for that you can see right now, this is the uh, desktop display of the new bottom panel. So Tobias says the mock-ups try to address a number of issues from user research and feedback to GNOME 40. So some of these uh, these issues are, say for example, people aren't drawn to the activities button at the top left because it's just text. Uh, also, the app menus confuse users. The app menu refers to the app menu next to the activities button or the activities text, really. Uh, and some applications use the app menu, and but most don't. Uh, most, I think like, I can only come up with like two off the top of my head that actually use the app menu. And that's like the GNOME base, the GNOME stuff, like uh, Nautilus, for example. Uh, but most applications don't use it. And a lot, of, a lot of users don't even know it exists. They just see the name of the application and you just go, okay, whatever. Uh, so, so quite often when you click that button, that menu, it would just show you like an about of the application. That's not something that most people would, would, would care about. So when they see that as a one example, they just kind of like dismiss it. But in some apps, it is quite useful. So there is that kind of a confusion there. Uh, also, the increased mouse travel, like I mentioned before, is a big factor. So 
if you look at the uh, visuals on the screen right now, you'll see the desktop in a the, the basic flow of just the individual desktop with the bottom panel. But if you look at the next screenshot, you'll see the GNOME 40 overview with the bottom panel here. And you'll notice that it has this bottom panel button that is the activities button, which is like the uh, phone tablet style, uh, three buttons to six buttons uh, or six dots that in, in indicate an app drawer sort of thing. So that's here, and I think this is something that needs to be considered by GNOME because of the mouse travel problem. So for those who are not familiar, if you're using GNOME 3 dot whatever, you, you haven't experienced the GNOME 40 mouse travel problem yet. And that's because uh, in GNOME 3, the top panel activities button is very close to the left sidebar uh, dash in the overview. So it's not that big of an issue. However, the the, act, the activities or the app drawer in the dash is at the bottom of that. So it is a significant amount of mouse travel anyway, but this is a lot more because in GNOME 40, the app drawer is in the bottom right of the dock, which is in the bottom center of the screen. And the activities button at the top left is how you activate the overview. So you have to move your mouse all the way to the top left if you prefer the hot corner, you could do that too, but it's basically the same distance anyway. And then once you click the activities, you got to go all the way back down to the middle, the bottom middle, uh, and then you can click the app drawer to see the other applications. Now, this kind of creates an issue where uh, the the faster way to do it is just to hit the super key. But uh, some people aren't even aware that you can hit super key, the Windows key uh, or logo key or whatever you want to call it, to activate the overview. And that creates another issue because it's not as intuitive as, you know, like a start menu or some kind of indicator that way. So this bottom panel would solve the mouse travel because once you click that button, you are immediately right next to the app drawer dash sort of thing. So with GNOME 40's changes, I think this bottom panel is a great uh, solution to solve that mouse travel problem. So... This change could introduce some other issues, though, such as potential removal of the hot corner activation in the overview because the top left is no longer going to be on the panel. They could maybe do like a pressure sensitive thing at the bottom middle. So you could just use the mouse to go all the way down to the middle where the button is and then you just activate it with the hot corner that way. So they're, they're, they could do that. Um, but there's other issues that kind of create some, uh, you know, really, though, it's kind of odd that has the clock all the way on the left side like that by itself. It's kind of weird. I, I understand the decision, though, because in order to have the button in the middle, you kind of need something on the, the left because it would kind of, if you didn't have something on the left, the emptiness would kind of make it feel off. So it's more of a uniformity thing. So it's it's interesting that they have this solution, but there, there's could other things you could do. You could have you know, one option is to play the activities button on the left of the panel and keep the clock in the middle. This would be kind of similar to how it already has the clock in the middle on the top panel and the travel between the bottom left to the uh, dash in the middle would be very similar, almost identical. In fact, from the top left to the left side dash. So it kind of would be okay to do that way. Uh, so that's an option. Uh, and also that would be you know, beneficial to people who want the bottom panel for the Windows paradigm thing, because that would be kind of similar to the Windows paradigm. But it would still have an issue with mouse travel, just not as much. Uh, so I think that that's something to consider too. So this one, or having a bottom left bu uh, start menu thing uh, is another option too. And, and another one is to have the clock on the far right with the system menu, like 
Uh, many other DEs have it, uh, and also have the uh, the current the activities button in the middle, like they show on the screen, like on the uh, the the visuals. So it, you could have it that way, but then you'd have this empty space. But what would you put in the empty space, right? And I have a I have an idea. It it might be a crazy idea, but it might work. Just just consider for a second. App indicators, aka system tray icons for applications. You know, the thing that everybody wants and GNOME doesn't have for some reason. So, and actually it's funny is because GNOME used to have a bottom left system tray with icons in for those menus there. So it would kind of be perfect going full circle, bringing it back, putting in the bottom left and making the experience that much better. So I think a bottom panel makes a lot of sense with a GNOME 40 layout, regardless if they bring app indicators or not. They should, but regardless if they do. Uh, something really needs to be done to solve the crazy amount of mouse travel that was introduced with GNOME 40. So I hope GNOME considers this um, option going forward because it is a great solution. And uh, again, also please consider bringing back the system tray icons because every user wants them. And now you have a, a perfect place to put them. So just think about it. If you'd like to check out the mock-up thread or the images yourself, then uh, check the links in the show notes below. Up next in the show, we have some great news from KDE that answers a really important question that people have been asking since the cute uh, LTS commercial-only phase thing that we talked about in episode 133 of Twill. So there's a couple of questions. We'll get to those in a second. But it answers the biggest question of what's going to happen with the transition from 5 to 6 uh, re related to uh, already Qt already pushing 6 and locking down updates for the LTS version of Qt 5. Well... Uh, as Qt 5 support is drawing to a close, KDE has decided to do shifting to Qt 6, which makes sense, but what are they going to do with the current setup? KDE announced this week that they will be maintaining a set of patches with security and functional fixes so that KDE software still based on Qt 5 can continue to be improved and support until it has the tr time to transition to Qt 6. So this isn't being described as a fork, but rather a set of patches that can be applied on top of open source Qt 5 toolkit until KDE has managed to move to Qt 6. This relates to, for example, uh, the Plasma, of course, but also the KDE frameworks, as well as KDE gear. Uh, KDE gear is the new name of the KDE applications uh, suite, and they, they're expected to arrive later this year based on Qt 6. Uh, Alish Pohl uh, from KDE, he's the KDE EV president, says to transition to great future technologies like Qt 6, we need to have the peace of mind that our current users are catered for. With this patch collection, we gain the flexibility to, that we need to stabilize the status quo. This way, we can continue collaborating with Qt and deliver great solutions for our users. So you may remember the news we talked about with the cute LTS going commercial only phase in episode 133 of Twill. So with that, there are a couple of questions, like I said. And the first one is, of course, why doesn't KDE just fork cute? Now, the answer to that question is very complicated, but the, the breakdown is, or the overview, is that it's very, very complex toolkit. So in order to fork it, you're essentially taking on a mountain, multiple mountains of work in order to maintain a fork. So it's not really a practical thing to do. And because this, this licensing change and the commercial releasing changes are not, they're, they're sketchy and they're kind of weird and they're definitely irritating, but they're not violating the 
the the letter of the agreement between Cute and KDE necessarily. So that's it's it's weird. But so the next question is is Cute closed source now? And the answer to that is no, it's not because uh, it's always it's it's got, it's always been multi licensed, but it has a agreement with the KDE Foundation because they have the the KDE Free Cute Foundation was created in the late 1990s in order to have an agreement between uh, KDE and Cute to make sure that in order to be included in KDE's uh, work that it is an open source project or it is an open source toolkit so that they can do so. Now. This is interesting because a lot of people don't know that the KDE Free Qcamp Foundation predates KDE's first 1.0 release. So the KDE 1.0 release was like a month or two after the KDE Free Qt Foundation was formed and the agreement with Qt was made. So it's really never been an issue of proprietary toolkit, even though that's been that's something that people have said for many, many years. It's not really what that was. And this agreement essentially means that Cute will not be able to go fully closed without violating that agreement with KDE. And uh, because this is a legal agreement, it's, you know, it creates a, a situation where this kind of thing happened, where they made this commercial only phase for the LTS. So it doesn't mean that the LTS is locked to commercial only. It means that there's a year delay for releases to open source. Now, in the world of programming and open source and computers, that is a very long amount of time. So it makes sense that this is not acceptable for a lot of people. But Qt 6 uh, is implementing this thing going forward with the LTS as well. But it's different because the when when you see the commercial only phase thing happening, it was like, oh, they're now commercial only commercializing the LTS. It is the case, sort of, but it's only the point releases. So it's a very weird topic. It's a very complicated topic, and I, I, I hope I was more clear and helped explain what it's going on. I don't think I have because I heard what I said, and then that was uh, awkward for sure. So if it's not clear, feel free to check out the link in the show notes for the DLN forum uh, where we discuss this in, in more in-depth, and you can find us more information. Uh, I'll have that linked in the show notes. Uh, and also, KDE announced something else that's pretty cool that I think is great to, to see that's not that uh, obvious that it's it's a, a beneficial aspect, but I think it's really cool because they added a K hamburger menu component for Q widget uh, apps, and this is cool because if you if you have Dolphin, you can already see a hamburger menu in your uh, file manager, or if you have used apps on a phone for any given time in the past fifteen years, you've probably also seen the hamburger menu. This is the term that describes a button at the top right that is like three lines stacked on each other. Now, why is it called a hamburger menu? Because, well, apparently it's supposed to resemble a hamburger. I, I don't know. It's That's a stretch, but that's what it's called. So this is cool because if you are in Plasma, there is an, a function you can hit Control-M and it will hide your main menu in any application. Now, this is fantastic because any a cute based application, you can save real estate by hitting that button. Now, sometimes you still might want access to those uh, features. 
And you can do that with other shortcuts and whatnot. But when, when you have this functionality built in, it means that when you, when you hide the main menu, you can automatically show the hamburger menu instead. So instead of hiding it completely, it will just move it to a more uh, real estate friendly style of a button, which I think is very, very cool because it saves uh, vertical space and it also uh, allows more space on the toolbar itself and a bunch of other things. So it's really cool to see them doing that. It sounds like it's not that important when you just th you just hear about it. It's a new menu style, but it actually is going to be a very nice thing to have. So that's really cool. And if you want to learn more about this, as well as the uh, the KDE uh, Qt5 patch collection, I have links to both of those in the show notes below. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean and their app platform. DigitalOcean's app platform service is a solution to build modern cloud-native apps. You can use a simple, intuitive, and visually rich experience to build, uh, deploy, manage, and scale apps very, very quickly. And support, it has support for multiple languages like Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby. It also has support for static sites, Docker, and container images. And it also gives you the ability to have high scalability with zero infrastructure management. What does that mean? Well, you simply point your GitHub or GitLab repository to the app platform and let it do all the heavy lifting for you, such as handling the infrastructure like app runtimes and dependencies so that you can push code to production in just a few clicks. It also secures your apps automatically by creating, managing, and renewing your SSL certificates for you as well as protecting your apps from DDoS attacks. You can run code with little to no customizations because the app platform uses open cloud native standards and automatically analyzes your code, creates containers, and runs them on Kubernetes clusters. As a listener of This Week in Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free, actually better than free, because DigitalOcean is going to give you a $100 free credit when you go to do.co slash DLN. Again, go to do.co slash DLN to get started with your $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's app platform. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. Up next in the show this week, we're going to have some legal news to talk about. Everybody's favorite legal news, right? And this is going to be talking about a case that we have discussed on multiple times on this show, and that is Google versus Oracle. So this is relating to whether or not a API can be copyrighted. And this has been gone to the U.S. Supreme Court, and we now have a decision from, this, from SCOTUS to uh, discuss whether or not it's copyrighted. So this is actually fantastic news because this is a, you know, kind of a long saga of Oracle's attempt to uh, claim that Google was doing copyright infringement against the Java API because Google did copy much of the, J the Java API for use in Android. And that's a, a problem in the case of like the, whether or not it was, it was a, you know, a copyright infringement or not, because this has just made a big mess of things that Oracle just really wanted to sue Google over. Now, this is an interesting topic because some people hate Google so much they wanted them to lose this case. However, that would be bad because an API is much more than just it hurts Google, you know, this case. That creating a copyrightable API would essentially destroy development and software development as it is uh, and because APIs are so heavily used and so heavily implemented in basically all of, of programming at this point that doing so would have created a massive problem and I'm happy to inform you that the US Supreme Court have reached a decision that is positive in this now it's a little bit 
asterisk. They didn't really fully talk about the copyright part, but I'll get to that in a second. So this is from the PDF. Uh, Google's purpose was to create a different task-related system for a different computing environment, uh, aka smartphones, and to create a platform, the Android platform, that would help achieve and popularize that objective. The record demonstrates numerous ways in which implementing an interface can further the development of computer programmers or programs. Google's purpose was therefore consistent with that creative process, progress that is the basic constitutional objective of copyright itself. So this is really good because it essentially says that Google is given um, fair use example for using their APIs. So by using the, the fair use uh, structure, that means that uh, it makes the existence of what people already assumed you could do with an API still valid, which is fantastic because if Oracle were to have won, that would have obliterated the the world of software programming as it as it is, and that would have been very very bad. Uh, so this is great news. So the creator of Java himself, James Gosling, tweeted about this, saying that sanity has prevailed. The Supreme Court sides with Google in Oracle's API, API copyright case. It's astonishing that this case even got started, much less that it ground for more than a decade. Very, very good point. Uh, so, But there, there is some stuff related to APIs that SCOTUS didn't answer. So they left the question of whether APIs can be copyrighted at all open. Uh, but with the, board's, the broad scope of what they gave in terms of fair use, it doesn't really matter that it's, you know, not spe specifically stated. So there's still a, you know, there's still a question whether or not you can copyright API, but because they chose to do a narrow target of the answer of the decision, they didn't affect what could have been problematic regardless of which choice they made. So it's actually really good that they didn't address that question. So this is very cool. And uh, the special counsel for uh, the EFF or the Electronic Frontier Foundation, Michael Barclays, declared that in a win for innovation, this decision gives more legal certainty to software developers. Common practice of using, reusing, 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 and re-implementing software interfaces written by others, a custom that underlies most of the internet and personal computing technologies we use every day. So this is also a win for open source and free software developers because uh, Mishi Kadhari, I'll guarantee I mispronounced that, sorry about that, is the legal director of the Software Freedom Law Center or the SFLC. And, they, and, and Mishi says that today's ruling puts the Supreme Court interpretation of fair use squarely on the side of free software movement's position that declarations and API definitions should not be restricted by copyright license and are subject to fair use. So this is, like I said, Fantastic news. Uh, the re-implementation of APIs is generally allowed primarily for interoperability because that is a fundamental principle of how software operates. So today's Supreme Court decision, 6-2, to two, is a win for developers and the software industry. It recognizes the critical role of software interfaces to promote innovation, interoperability, and new technologies. So this is fantastic news. And uh, the, the the what could have happened... I don't want to think about it anymore. We don't have to worry about it anymore because the Supreme Court has made a decision and it's on the side of technology, not on the side of greed, a.k.a. what Oracle wanted to do, in my opinion, allegedly.
Up next in the show, we have some more news from Google. And in this case, it's also some good news, and that relates to the Lyra Speech Codec. So Google announced that they have open-sourced the work on the voice audio codec known as Lyra. So Lyra is designed for very low bitrate audio for speech compression, and it is used for things like WebRTC and video chatting and stuff like that, and, but even on very limited internet connections, which is really, really cool. So the it uses the wave RNN variation for recurrent generative models, lets uh, Lyra gener- uh, cre- greatly reduce the comput- computational complexity. But the, what does that mean, right? So... Essentially what it does is that it allows Lyra to be able to get good quality voice data at a small internet connection uh, requirement. And that is uh, three kilobits per second through their machine learning work. So this is very, very interesting, especially if you pair it with AV1 video codec because it makes it possible for video chats over 56 kilobyte internet connections. That's right, video chats over dial-up. That is what this uh, audio codec can do combined with the AV1 video codec. So that is super interesting. So the Lyra high quality, low bit rate speech codec has been released as open source with an initial 0.0.1 beta version. And it's very interesting to see them do this. And I think it's gonna be cool and it, it may improve uh, a lot of the experience with different WebRTC services, although this is very early days, so we'll have to wait and see what happens there. But I am happy to see that Google's releasing this sort of thing as open because that is quite cool. If you'd like to learn more about this, I'll have links to their GitHub project in the show notes below. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about a new uh, release for the Sway window manager. If you're not familiar, Sway is a window manager for Wayland. It is basically inspired by the i3 window manager for X. It's a tiling window manager. And this latest release of 1.6 ships with more than 200 changes from the the previous version. It has new features as well as some bug fixes. Uh, Sway is uh, basically, it brings this new version of 1.6 brings smoother and interactive move and resize operations, better integrations with Flatpak and Snap applications via the XDG foreign protocol support, which is really nice. Uh, Input method editor or the IME improvements, uh, improvements for the i3 compatibility with like configurations and whatnot. Uh, An option to hide the cursor when typing, Uh, tray icon support for systems without uh, systemd or eLoginD. Also it adds support for improvements with the X11 clipboard reliability and much more. If you wanna check out the full change log for the latest release of Sway 1.6, I'll have links in the show notes below. Uh, for those who are not familiar, uh, Sway is a tiling window manager for Wayland. So if you are interested in ever trying out uh, Wayland and you also are an i3 user, well, you really couldn't do that. However, Sway makes it possible. So if you are interested in trying out Wayland and you want to use something like that's tiling, then check out Sway 1.6. Links in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com DLN. Bitwarden is a password manager, which is an awesome piece of software that if you do not have one, you absolutely need to get one because it allows you to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. How does it do that? Well, it does so by securing your online accounts by having a password vault 
And also it makes it easy to auto-generate those passwords for you and even automatically fill in passwords for you on login forms so you don't have to do it. So it creates this fantastic experience of being able to have a ton of great complex passwords on every single account for every single website, which you should do that, by the way. Do not share, don't, do not reuse passwords. That's bad policy. Don't do that. But it allows you to have all of these things, but have them ac accessible on really any device you want, whether it's your web browser, your mobile phone, your uh, desktop application, or you can even use the command line if you want to, which is just makes it so much easier to have access to all of your passwords, regardless of how complex they are at any given time. And Bitwarden seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end -end encryption before it ever leaves your devices, so you know you're the only person with access to your data. Bitwarden, Bitwarden is the password manager that I use and trust because in addition to all of these features, it's also 100% open source software. That's right, 100% open source, which means that features and securities of their infrastructure can be vetted and improved by the community. So when I first found Bitwarden and I saw they were open source, I basically was using a different password manager and I was like, I was, I really want everything about this password manager except I also want it to be open source. And then I found Bitwarden and it's exactly what I wanted and more because there's a bunch of features that it also had that made it so I, I had an even better experience, like the pin code system, so much better. So many great things about Bitwarden. And I think you want to check out their premium account because in addition to all the great features I've already listed, they also give you one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, Priority Customer Service, and so much more. And you get all of this for just $10 per year. That's right, less than a dollar per month. So make the smart move like many from the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get peace of mind for your passwords and other sensitive data. And also you can support a company that truly gets open source by signing up for that $10 per year premium account. So let them know you appreciate them supporting open source and supporting the This Week in Linux podcast. Go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring This Week in Linux. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about Pipewire because they have this new release for 0.3.25. And we've talked about Pipewire before on previous episodes of Twill on multiple occasions, actually, such as uh, Twill 127 when Fedora announced they would be shipping Pipewire with, for default in Fedora Linux 34. Also, we've talked about it in many other cases, but Pipewire is something that I think is very exciting, but it's one of those low-level things that most people won't know about or even interact with much at all. Uh, so what's important about Pipewire? Well, we have to kind of compare Pipewire to Pulse Audio. It's a little bit more than Pulse Audio, but, you know, we'll get to that in a second. But Pipewire is the kind of the next next iteration, the, the successor to Pulse Audio, is, as it were. So in the future, Pipewire will be much more used and at some point probably become a standard, which I'm looking forward to. Uh, but currently, Pulse Audio is what everybody uses for their audio system stack. And Pipewire is going to be a replacement. But what does it do exactly that's different from Pulse? Well, it has a different security model. Model? What? It has a different security model suitable for sandboxed applications. That's where that model comes from. Anyway, so that it actually makes it better to support for sandbox applications like flat packs and snaps and that sort of stuff. It also includes extra handling of video streams for capturing like OBS and whatnot, which is very, very cool. 
Uh, it has better support for Wayland. It has built-in functionality similar to Jack for easily accessible pro audio features. And it fixes some long-standing issues of Pulse Audio, such as some stuff with uh, Bluetooth, for example. Uh, and for, for example, uh, Pipewire 0.3.25 has introduced some more Bluetooth features so you can use your phone as a microphone in your system through Bluetooth, which is just very, very cool. Uh, so it's, it's uh, Pipewire is not something you'll be able to easily switch to in your current system, probably. So unless you're using Fedora, you could go ahead and try out Fedora 34 if you want to. But again, that's a beta, so keep that in mind. Uh, but for now, Pulse Audio will do just fine for most people. But I am very much looking forward to the day that Pipewire becomes standard because Pipewire is just so cool, especially with the, the pro audio features and the video streams capturing and the, the sandbox functionality. We talked about last week, we talked about OBS on Wayland is specifically partly in because Pipewire exists is how they were able to do that. So cool. Uh, it's just one of those things that most people won't interact with because if the sound works, then the sound works and they don't have to deal with anything. And that's what the, you know, the experience that most people have. But the potential that Pipewire offers for the pro level stuff is so cool. If you'd like to learn more about Pipewire, then check out the links in the show notes below. Up next in the show is some interesting news. While most people have never heard of COBOL, it is a language that has been around for a long time. We'll get to that in a second. But IBM has announced that they have a COBOL compiler for Linux on x86. So in the announcement, IBM says that COBOL for Linux on x86 1.1 brings IBM's COBOL compilation technologies and capabilities to the to Linux on x86 environment. And they, they say that the latest this is the latest addition to the IBM COBOL compiler family, which includes Enterprise COBOL for ZOS and COBOL for AIX. So COBOL, for those who are not familiar, is the common business-oriented language. It, ha it has its roots back into the 1950s and is synonymous, synonymous with mainframe era. Uh, so why is IBM bothering to offer a COBOL compiler for Linux on x86? They say that they think that you, you may want your COBOL apps in a hybrid cloud environment. So albeit the kind of hybrid cloud that IBM does, uh, which means the mix of uh, ZOS, AIX, mainframes, power systems, uh, and also public clouds, depending on your situation. So this is why they're trying to they're 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 making this COBOL compiler for Linux on x86. IBM also uh, baked in native XML support to further help interoperability and created a conversion utility that can migrate COBOL source code developed with non-IBM COBOL compilers. So. COBOL is a language I have never used before outside of referring it in memes and stuff like that. But it is surprisingly kicking along at big scales even. There's, there's even reports that some very large retail companies use COBOL for their transaction systems for checkout purposes in like retail brick and mortar stores. Now, there's, they're not really specifying which companies, but there are some reports saying that there are some big retail companies that do that. So... I'm kind of curious, what do you think of this announcement from IBM? Have you ever programmed in COBOL? Is this the first time you've ever heard of COBOL? That sort of stuff. Let me know in the show notes, in the show notes. Well, no, what? Let me know in the comments below what you think about this particular news. Do you, are you interested in, you know, compiling COBOL? Have, have you ever actually used COBOL before? I'm very curious. Let me know in the comments below. And if you'd like to learn more about this particular news, I'll have links in the show notes. 
Up next in the show is the latest release of JingOS, which is a tablet-based distribution for Linux. And this is the latest release of 0.8. On episode 134 of Twill, I introduced you to JingOS, which is a Linux-based distribution specifically for tablets. It's made by the Jingling Company in China, and the interface is without a doubt inspired by Apple's iPadOS. Uh, we're, today we're talking about their latest updates, which adds a lot of needed improvements. I haven't tested this latest release of 0.8 of JingOS, but I did test the alpha release, which was 0.6, and it was uh, rough. Also, I didn't like the fact that you had to agree to their terms and their EULA in order to actually use the this software. You, you didn't have a choice. It's either agree or don't use it, but uh, that's a different topic. Uh, this latest release of 0.8, they have redesigned the settings app. They've in, improved the Wi-Fi support for auto detection. They've redesigned the files app. They added a new app store, which is really nice because app stores are very important for the uh, usability of a system and any distribution uh, that doesn't have an app store should get at least some kind of app store because it does improve the usability a lot. So there you go. Uh, they've also done improvements to the desktop for rearranging icons, the task manager, uh, app resolution for auto adjusting on high resolution displays and some other stuff. And uh, we had a very interesting conversation about JingOS on episode 218 of Destination Linux. There's even some controversial aspects discussed in the episode. So if you haven't seen it yet and want to know more about JingOS, then be sure to check out episode 218 of Destination Linux. I'll have links to the latest release of JingOS forum thread as well as DL218. Links to those in the show notes. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about some Humble Bundles because there's a lot of cool stuff in the Humble Bundles right now. For, for example, there is the Ultimate Python Bookshelf Bundle by Packet, which is a, a, a book bundle to learn how to do Python and a variety of different things. They have the Python Workshop, uh, Web Development with, with Django, Hands-On Exploratory Data Analysis with Python, Python Automation Cookbook, Python Data Cleaning Cookbook, Data Engineering with Python, even learn quantum computing with Python and IBM's quantum experience and much more. So if you're ever interested in checking out or learning about Python, then you might want to check out the links for the, uh, the ultimate Python bookshelf bundle by packet on humble bundle. Now to be clear, the links in the show notes are affiliate links. So if you do choose those, choose to use those links, a small percentage will be go to this, this show to help, you know, make it happen. So I would appreciate it very much if you do decide to purchase any of the bundles that I talk about in this episode that you do use those links below. Uh, also, there is a game dev design and graphics bundle by Mercury for game development using Python. That works out nicely. Programming fundamentals using Java, a game dev approach. It also has uh, books about uh, storyboarding, 3D printing, computer graphics programming, and OpenGL, and so much more. In addition to that, there's also a machine learning uh, bundle called Zero to Hero. Uh, this is a bundle that includes stuff like machine learning with TensorFlow, deep learning with vision systems, AI-powered search, uh, and also deep learning with Python. Fits perfectly in this particular episode, uh, and so much more. So if you want to check out these bundles, as well as the other bundles that I didn't talk about, there's actually, I think, like four or five others. I'll have links to all of the bundles in the show notes below. Uh, but if again, if you want to use uh, the, the links, I would very much appreciate it because it would help out make, help me make this show. So if you don't mind, please use the links below in the show notes for the affiliate links. And again, uh, if you are interested at all in Python programming, there's a lot of cool stuff in the Humble Bundles right now. 
Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on the show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the show and the channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, Patreon, sponsors, and many others. You can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com contribute. Also, remember, you can use the links for the Humble Bundles in the show notes below to also help contribute to the show and the channel. And if you become a patron, you can join me during the live stream in the recording stadium to discuss stuff between topics and to just hang out every week after the show in the patron post show. You can also order the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt, which is a shirt I'm wearing right now. You can check that out at the DLN store at dlnstore.com. And if you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episodes of Destination Linux and Hardware Addicts, as I'm a co-host of both of those shows on the Destination Linux network. And just a reminder, this show is live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern or 1700 UTC. So join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each week by going to dealinlive.com. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with the Destination Linux Network. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux. And I'll see you next week for your weekly source for Linux Good News.